So Tanya, you are John's first wife. That's correct. So tell me a little bit about your story. Well, I'm kind of the first bookend of this story. Deborah's the, the final the final bookend and the final chapter. And um, I married John when I was very young at 23 and kind of a, a um, young, budding uh, girl who wanted a family, was looking for somebody who was Catholic, who had the same values, same ideas of how to um, live their life, someone smart. And um, I met John out dancing with friends after work. and. He stopped me on the way to the bathroom, and that's how the story started. And how many years were you together? We were together like 12 years, married 10, yeah. And how many years into your marriage did you realize that he wasn't all that he pretended to be? Not till the end, till he asked me for a divorce, and then I was like, something's not right here. And that's what allowed me to kind of get the courage and the bravery to start looking and digging on someone that I, you know, you don't do that to your husband, you know. So I started searching. I got some clues from his mom. I called his mom who I'd never met. I searched his office and I found drugs and an affair. And that's how my knowledge of who he was started. Mostly his mom. Wow. What, what was the most telling thing that his mom told you? That he wasn't even the age that I thought he was, that he had altered his name, that he had been arrested and had a drug uh, arrest many many years ago because John was very clean-cut very hard-working uh, played basketball three nights a week never smoked never drank nothing very square what are you hoping that people take away from this real-life story because it's crazy that this really happens well I mean I think there's a lot of lessons here um, one of them is listen to yourself don't let people talk you out of those clues that you might be getting about somebody I trusted him more than I trusted myself and that kind of blew up in my face. The other thing is just the awareness, um, you know, about abuse. Abuse just isn't sexual and physical. This is a different type of abuse. This is coercive control and just getting that out there I think is very important. And also you and Deborah are both intelligent, smart women. So yeah. this is just for lots of people that heard the podcast and will be watching the show. This is what makes it even more unbelievable. Right, right. And I, I also, I, I don't want women to be ashamed. Um, and that's why I, you know, I'm here, that's why I'm sharing the story, and that's why I'm standing um, in the truth that is my life. And for my girls, I want to model that for them. We didn't do anything wrong, and uh, they don't need to be embarrassed, and neither do I. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, where I left off in the last episode, Tonya was sharing how she had to be her own advocate and that she was told by the police to record her conversations with John. And yet when she did, they assessed the tapes and said that she didn't sound scared enough. I can't tell you how egregious this is to me. Whenever I hear professionals say things like that to women, it makes me so angry. The issue is the perpetrator's behaviour and not the victim's reaction to it. Now, this really underscores four key points that I want to share with you. One, that risk assessment training is vital for professionals. So whoever you are and wherever you are, make sure you're trained by an expert. Two, that as a woman, you often cannot win, whichever way you go. Three, that's exactly why expert risk assessors and advocates like me are needed to be an independent voice for the victim. And four, Always, always, always trust your instincts. 
irrespective of what a professional might tell you. You're in possession of more information than the professional is. You know the abuser's baseline behaviour and you have a helicopter perspective of everything that's going on. They do not. So if you believe that you and or your children are at risk, you most likely are. That's exactly why it's a high risk factor to serious harm and homicide in the DASH risk model. Okay, I really don't want that to get lost and it was really important to say. So let's now jump into part two of my fascinating interview with Tonya Bells. And once again, listener discretion is advised as this content may be triggering and it will be angry making. I had to be an advocate for myself and and, and that showed in, in all of the the journaling that I did, that I saved everything, that I recorded phone calls of everything. I just, I had to represent myself as best I could because I'm the one who cared the most, right? I'm the one who's protecting my daughters from their own father. It's something I never thought in a million years I would ever have to do. Not something that ever crossed my mind. I'm sure it doesn't cross any woman's mind, but you know, don't cross mama bear. Uh, and that's who I became. As naive as you may have thought I was at 23, getting into a relationship with John, I became just the opposite as soon as my eyes were open to what was really going on. And you had to, you you had no choice. So walk us back to the, the 23-year-old you and let's, let's square the two Tonyas. Because you met him young, you met him at 23 first, well, not your first relationship, actually, but but the first, obviously, he proposed to you and things well-winded and who he turned out to be was quite different to who he presented. So I know and you know there are people who say, oh, well, Tonya was very naive, very gullible. What would you say to that? I would say they're right. <laughs> I would say, I also like to point out it was 1988. It's not today's world. We didn't have cell phones. I didn't have a computer, didn't have an internet. John was attending a Catholic university. I was raised Catholic. I was raised to be honest and and not lie. And I saw people through my own eyes. I'm not perfect. I sin like everybody else. I make mistakes. I've told white lies. But generally, I'm an honest person. And so I think when people are talking to me, they're honest. And and even though my eyes have been opened by John, I'm still kind of that way. And you know what? I still want to be that way. I was fine the way I was. <laughs> but yeah, I was I was young. I hadn't had a lot of relationships. I'd never been picked up by anyone before or since then in that type of scenario. And John was playing a game and I didn't know the rules, obviously. And I was a perfect target for him. I was perfect. And he could see that in me. And I didn't know to look for it in him. Yeah. Amazingly said, actually. Quite a few things just leap out at me with you saying that. Firstly is that, and I talked about it on the podcast, you being polite, kind, compassionate, empathetic. They're all the things that a psychopath looks for. You don't know that. You're not an expert on psychopathy. But for me, when I see the victim's profiles, women that John targeted, tick, 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 tick. You don't know that. Well, why would you? Most women don't. But the other thing is that 16 to 24-year-olds are the highest risk group 
to end up with somebody who is coercively controlling or a domestic abuser, the 16 to 24-year-olds. And that's really important for everybody to understand. It's exactly why we need to talk about healthy relationships and what a healthy relationship looks like. And not just talk about mechanics of sex, but to talk about emotional you know, relationships, everything, how it fits together and to talk about coercive control. And that's now going to be happening in the UK, Tonya, because of the Domestic Abuse Act, the Domestic Abuse Plan that's going to be coming in where there will be education in schools about healthy relationships because we need to hear age-appropriate things for younger people. How would you know what unhealthy looks like? How would you know if somebody's abusing you, particularly if they're using control when you don't have lots of relationships or experience to fall back on? So, And I think that's a very important point. And where, sadly, a lot of the murders happen, again, it's that age group. You know, the Gabby Petitos, the younger women that don't know coercive control is not love once they start to see it show up and being controlling and jealous, that's not love and love shouldn't hurt. So when you start to see the relationship change because something has happened and they start to behave in that way, no, you don't have to stay quiet and get on with it. And it does, coercive control does correlate to femicide and that is the reality. So th there's a big job ahead of us of educating and educating young girls and women, but also boys and men. You know, for me being a new mom of a boy, I have to think about all the messages for him. And I know that you think about it for your daughters too, because when they start dating and when they get married, they have relationships, that opens up a whole new world of things that they may ask you about. So we do need to educate, not just younger people, but the mums and the dads, the brothers, the cousins, the best friends. And we all have a role in helping younger people, but also holding individuals to account when they do start to use behaviour and we pick it up earlier rather than later. And unfortunately, you understood who John was uh, much later in the relationship when you were pregnant, when you had children with him. And I remember us talking about you going through the hard drive, his emails, and you see a very different side to John. You corresponding with him, and I remember us talking about this specifically, I could see very clearly everything that went wrong, you internalised as if it was something that you were doing wrong. Everything that went wrong, he externalised. It was nothing to do with him. It was all you, and that's what you kept hearing. But meanwhile, whilst you're taking all the blame and trying to fix things... He is flirting with other women and men. And we found that out with Mark, the correspondence with him that was very flirtatious, wasn't it? Very different to how he was talking with you. What did you make of all of that? Well, I can tell you that hard drive, if anything, almost ever killed me in my life emotionally. It was that night I read hundreds and hundreds of pages and emails. You know, it's like I said, it's one thing to find out that your spouse has been been cheating and lying. It's another to read the transcript of it <laughs> in in real time over the course of one night. And all those revelations that came to me that night, that was probably one of the worst nights of my entire life. In reading those emails and that hard drive, I had suspicions from the language that it seemed like John's flirting with Mark, that, that maybe there's some sort of, you know, relationship there, but there wasn't any proof, just suspicions. 
And that's part of the reason I wanted to talk with Mark. And I wouldn't have been surprised if Mark had, you know, disclosed that him and John had a relationship. But, you know, he said that they did not. Reading about John and his relationship with the doctor in Michigan, which was the affair and the reason that he left me, that was, you know, one of the hardest of his relationships uh, for me to bear because it was going on from prior to us even planning or conceiving Abigail. So there's all that deceit that's happening behind your back while you think your life is normal and you're moving on to the next steps. He's done with school. We're going to have another child. And I mean, that hard drive was awful. And I don't know if I've answered your original question because sometimes I go off on a tangent, but it's a lot to process. Yeah. I mean, still, because even <laughs> yeah. me asking that question, this is a completely unscripted conversation, by the way. Tonya doesn't know what I'm going to ask. And I'm just asking in the moment, too, of what stood out to me. And I remember the hard drive, everything you had to process in there, but also what what we thought might have been going on. And yes, it's not through lack of trying. I think John did want to have some kind of relationship with Mark. We're certainly flirting at the very time where he's being very boundaried with you. That's what really struck me. These very flirtatious emails almost trying to court Mark. And yet with you, he's being very boundaried and trying to make you look inwardly to yourself. And you're trying to fix things. It's obvious to me that you just want to try and work things out in the relationship, and yet he's doing nothing to meet you at any point. And, and then he starts to, but majority of the way that he communicated with you was very um, boundaried. Mm-hmm. So he had the ability to be boundaried, and it was clear his intention was not to try and work things out because his attention was el- elsewhere. But I think, the, was he potentially bisexual? Was he potentially gay? Most likely. Most likely. And just because it didn't come to fruition with Mark, we know that he did a lot of things to get Mark's attention. And even the things that he would say to Mark, I mean, very unkind about you. And of course, just talking about bro culture just for a moment, because I do think that that plays in that when men don't challenge other men, you know, when someone's being very disrespectful about their wife and misogynistic, I'm going to use the M word, you know, and it's just notched up by other guys as being, oh, he's just got a bit of a naughty streak or he's just a bit cheeky or, well, no, that's not a naughty streak. That's actually somebody who's misogynistic and is very concerning. And we need other men to challenge other men when that happens. It can't just be up to women to say, hang on a minute, you know, it's not right that you're being sexist or you're being misogynistic. And that's not right to say that about your wife. And I really don't want to have that conversation. I think that's a very important part as well. I don't know how you you feel about that. I can't remember whether we talked about it, but that misogyny for me and it just being accepted, uh, that's also what, what we've got to try and change. And we need boys and men to help with that. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy, and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. 
Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormills, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. I mean, I agree, and I also know that I've been in a situation where someone's talking like that, and I have felt very uncomfortable, and it's hard to speak up, but uh, I think change can only happen when we're uncomfortable, and we need, like any other behavior, we have to practice at that. We have to be mindful of speaking up and tell people that we're not comfortable hearing that, and you shouldn't be talking to your wife about your wife like that or you know, in those types of scenarios. There were a lot of people who seemed to protect John, you know, men and women who knew things and protected him by not telling me, by not reporting. Um, And I think that became, you know, clear in the podcast. Men, women, people he dated, people he didn't date, his friends. I, I actually also, Laura, this just came to mind. I was also very struck that And some of it wasn't even put in the podcast, but some of his prior friends from, let's say, after he was arrested for trafficking cocaine in the in the early 80s or about 80 or 81, who became his friends after that, who said this John they're hearing about now is not the John they knew in the 80s. Well, yes, he was. Yes, he is. He didn't tell you who he was, what he had done, where he had been, the lies that he had that he's telling you right now, that's not a genuine relationship. If someone is is not disclosing who they are, you just didn't know it. You thought you had a relationship with someone real, but you didn't. And it's it was intriguing to me that, you know, a couple of the people had said exactly that. This is not the John I knew. I would beg to differ. <laughs> so too would I. Yeah. You know, I... I <laughs> I think, um, you know, I always say the, the women who have significant relationships with someone know them the best, even though they might not know everything that they're doing, but they tend to see much more of them. And the, the real them, particularly when something doesn't go their way, i.e. when you're not doing what they want you to do, you see the real them, right? That's what they reveal. Everything else with John was very much about impression management. And with people who he didn't see so frequently or regularly, he could maintain a certain image and keep some distance with some and present. Like with Kim, when he would go round to her family's house, he seemed to really enjoy her family more than her. 
And that might be a, a cruel thing to say, some might say, but he enjoyed being with her family because he didn't have the family that she had. And I think there was part of him that always hankered after that. But she might say, oh, well, I knew him and he was X or Y. But actually, I think much of that was about him putting on his best impression management and being able to control things because he would dip in and out of it when it suited him on his terms. So yes, I would agree with you. And, and what we see with psychopaths as well is they're chameleon-esque. They're very good at putting forward this impression and being whoever you want them to be in those moments. And of course, with John, we saw that a lot. He was very good at reading the emotional temperature. And I think he had that down to a fine art of being able to key in, you know, and work people out and understand vulnerability, understand deficiency, be whatever you needed him to be to get whatever he needed out from it. So yes, I struggle when people say, oh, well, he didn't come across like that to me, or that's not the John that I knew. It's because, you know, we talk about the word conning, you know, I don't like it because it's, it really, to me, just minimizes actually, you know, when we're talking about a psychopath, we're talking about somebody who is very dangerous. The con, that, that word always tends to be used as if someone's, you know, just a bit of a cheeky chap. They've managed to game someone or be a bit duplicitous. But this is a, as you know, you lived it, a very dangerous man who was a psychopath and who harmed many, many people, some who probably we still don't know about. And of course, he's suspected of killing and being responsible for the death of his brother, potentially his father. There are other investigations and lines of inquiry that really should have been exhausted. And I, I agree with you, Dennis Lucan really did, you know, and kudos to him, understand what John was about. And really, we needed more police officers to understand what John was about and other professionals in the ecosystem that supports him. Because it does seem like he was given a pass so many times to do and be whatever he wanted to be. But when you're going through family court, you're having to be almost the best version of yourself as you could possibly be because you're under the microscope and he put you under the microscope as if you were doing something wrong. Sorry, it always makes me get angry. <laughs> it flashes up like everyone's looking at your behavior when they should be looking at his. Right, because he, tried to, he tried to put the drugs on me because I had access to the drugs too. And talk about being furious. I helped you get into my profession, and now you're going to risk my livelihood, my profession, my uh, reputation. But he knew that's the only way, one of the only ways he had to get me, right? He knew what you prized the most, yes. your children and your work, because you're a professional woman. And yes, you got him a job. And that's what makes it even more, come on people in the family court, wake up. Mm -hmm. Why can't you see the what I call the BGOs, the blinding glimpses of the obvious. that They're looking at you as if you're half of the problem of him rather than there was. I can understand they didn't, under, they didn't know about coercive control, but there's no reason now that professionals shouldn't. But there was coercive control. There was separation, stalking and escalation. There were threats. He had access to firearms. There's no excuse for when I looked at the, the domestic abuse, stalking and harassment on a base violence risk model, the DASH and looked at your case, there's no excuse for people not to understand that they're high risk factors and that men like him are dangerous. And particularly when he's gone to prison as well. I mean, these things are very basic things that should be joined up, but there you are 
having to justify yourself when you're having to be the responsible one and you're still put in the same kind of category as him. Well, let's test Tonya for drugs too, as well as John, but why would you Mm -hmm. when you hold the responsible job? All the reasons that we've discussed. It's not just mind-boggling. It's unfortunate that, you know, you have to point it out that it is about a misogynistic system that through having worked thousands of cases that still favours men. He could be an abuser, but he might still be a good enough father. And to me, when we understand that child abuse and domestic abuse co-occur, you have to always look at the person's behaviour and the fact that he didn't do anything, really. He did everything against trying to prioritise his daughters and their safety and their well-being. So this isn't somebody who's a good influence. And he certainly wasn't with you. Um, He may have presented as that in the first place, but certainly the way he threatened your parents or left those messages on your parents' voicemail, and even with Augie, you know, targeting him, there were just so many things that so few people seem to really see him for who he truly was. Now people do because of the label Dirty John. But people say, oh, well, it's very obvious now, but it, it wasn't at the time and we're still joining things up. Still, there are revelations coming out um, because he was so prolific. And it's it's not just a cautionary tale. I think there are so many lessons for people. What would be your main one for anybody listening now in terms of the takeaway or the lesson that you would want them to know about? I think there's so many. This is going to be hard for me to put into a sentence, but I think that one is this can happen to almost anyone, that I hope that I've shown that you don't need to be ashamed if you happen to find yourself in a relationship like this, because it does happen to lots of women, that just educate yourself as much as you can to to learn about this type of person, how to stay safe, how to leave the situation, how to tell other people so that you have an army around you. I mean, I think those are are the main things that I've tried to, you know, relate through telling my story and the podcast and, you know, all the things that I've learned from my own experience and from you, quite honestly, uh, in the process. Thank you. Yes. I mean, I would certainly add in to trust your instinct and ask more questions, (laughs) right? Because that's what you've done. You you were curious, you trusted your instinct, and you asked more questions. Yes. And, you know, during the time with John, I had instincts. Things were bubbling up in me, but this person is so good at throwing back what you are feeling is not true. That's ridiculous. And so you start to doubt yourself. And if I had believed everything that I thought, all the little voices inside my head, if I had believed them from the beginning, this story could have gone very differently. Now, I also like to say that everything happens for a reason. And I have my children because of my relationship with him. And I've learned a lot. And I have... I have thrived. And I'm in a good place. And I'm able to help other people. So... I don't have regrets in life, but, you know, trusting your gut, trusting your instincts. If you, I mean, I've learned a lot about the reason sometimes we have instincts is we see something in someone's look or their eye, a small shift, a slight change in their expression. Your, 
you've got a great intelligent force in your in your brain and it's telling you things. It's noticing those little things. And so you need to pay attention. Believe yourself more than you believe somebody else. Absolutely. Trust what you're seeing and hearing and what your understanding of someone rather than letting your brain reframe things or rationalize things. And I think that that is a very important point. That's what I always say with the dash as well. Trust what you're seeing and trust the action, trust the behavior, not what's being said Mm -hmm. to repackage it. The perpetrator that we're describing, i.e. a psychopath or someone who's very good at manipulating and using coercive control, they're also very good at quietening a woman's concerns and questions. They can zero in on it immediately and they can change your language over time and they change you trusting yourself and they alter they alter who and what you are and it's never to your benefit. So there's lots of indicators, but I think that trusting your instinct, we have more brain cells in our gut than a dog has in its head and it's intuitive, it's instinctive and we know what it is in that moment and then someone might reframe it or repackage it for us and then we may quieten our own thoughts about it because we might always want to see the best in someone or it's easier and better and we don't want to see the worst in someone. So for me, it's always been that your gut always knows, you always have a sense of something and it's when you don't follow it. Um, I always said to you, you survived, you know, and I was so happy having heard those calls that you did because you trusted your instinct about him and about your girls and that's what got you to this place. Unfortunately, four to five women are murdered every day by their current or former male partner. And exactly the same risk indicators that I've talked about with you have also been present prior to them being killed. You know, that separation, that finality, this scorch the earth, enjoy your time left. You know, you want to play games with me and the power and control dynamic where someone will stop at nothing and that that finality point, because it's about winning the game. That's what it's about. It's about that power and control, whether they want the children or not. It's about destroying you and winning the game. So it's a very dangerous thing. And I'm so grateful that, I mean, I say it, that you survived with your daughters and that you're here talking about what happened and so courageously to help other people. So I really do thank you, Tonya, um, really from the bottom of my heart, because I know it hasn't been an easy process and those people who sit and judge and shame and and blame victims while when you're up against a psychopath it is not easy to come out alive and particularly when they're scorched the earth so it can happen to anyone and by the grace of god you go if you are a polite kind compassionate empathetic woman and you don't come under the lens or you don't come into contact with a a psychopath or someone who wants to control you, you know, and if you don't and you have a wonderful life, blessed and have wonderful relationships, all power to you. And that's a fantastic thing. But unfortunately, you know, no one asks to have a relationship with a psychopath and they don't have two heads or they don't have a label on them saying what they are. So it can happen to anybody. And so people should be very careful if they're, they're judging and thinking that it will never happen to them. And I agree, people can educate themselves now. There's a lot of information on my Laura Richards website on coercive control specifically. But getting the message out, which we have done through 
John Meehan, the first wife, the reign of terror, which is what it was. Um, and now, fortunately, you and Emily and Abby and uh, the other women as well can breathe somewhat easy because he's no longer on this planet because of Terra Newell, because of a very small, petite, blonde uh, woman who he probably never thought would end his life, but he had every intention of ending hers. And thank goodness she survived. So that the story really is about a number of incredible women. And yes, Dennis Lucan's in there. He played a very key role as well. But a number of incredible women. It could have been a very different outcome. And thank goodness for all of you, for Deborah, Tara, for Deborah's other daughter, for your daughters, for you, for Detective Julia Bowman, who played a very pivotal role, and Mayor Laid Anderson, another uh, woman who came forward. You're, you're all sheroes to me. And that's really how I tied up when I was being asked in publicity, what's the, what's the first wife about and what's the story about? And I always said it's about sheroes. It's about incredible women who survived something um, and now want to share their story to help others. Thanks, Laura. I appreciate all you've done, you know, with the story and, you know, getting to know you and, you know, the language that you have applied to John and his behavior instantly when I heard that, I thought, she's got it. I've never heard anyone, you know, talking like this or describe John like this. And and that really, you know, uh, helped me tremendously in my understanding and, and my healing through this process, for sure. I'm really pleased to hear that. As you know, language is so important, isn't it? The words mm -hmm. that you use that can validate someone's experience. And, and that's really why I spearheaded the coercive control law reform campaign in, in the UK, was to give people a language, a common shared language. And that language still present day, we're trying to get it across America, Australia. There's new laws coming in um, on coercive control. And it can make a, a real difference when you have legislation, when you have professionals who really do get it. So I just want to thank you for your time. I know you said, oh, I didn't think, you know, you'd want to talk to me again. As I said, I'm always love to talk to you, Tonya. And, you know, I really appreciate this conversation. I know it will help others, but I want to be respectful of your time. I said it would be an hour and uh, that's where we are. So I'm happy if you have any questions or any final thoughts, then, then throw them in before we wrap. I can't think of anything at the moment, no. Okay, well, we will wrap it up and I will thank you very much for your time and send you and family lots of love and more than happy to have other conversations going forward as well. So thank you, Tonya. And to my listeners, you heard me say what Tonya did throughout her situation that was escalating, being curious, asking questions, and always trust your instincts. So that's what I'm going to end on, as I always do with crime analysts. And until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. 
Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only, not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.